Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and the second in our exciting panel discussions from the Australian War Memorial. Today, you guys are going to be heavily involved as listeners because I've asked you to send in your questions. We've got a fantastic team of historians here who are going to answer your questions and also have just a a great discussion about Australian military history, the work that the Australian War Memorial does, and really anything else that that comes up. So I'm sitting at a table with a number of great historians. We should. Let's go around and introduce each one. Let's start over here. Dr. Carl James, regular contributor to the podcast. Carl, welcome back. What are you working on at the moment? Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, since we last spoke, I'm now the head of the military history section here at the War Memorial. Congratulations. Which has been uh, kind of fun. Now I'm back for appearance number five. So... There may be some correlation between my appearances on this podcast uh, and my promotions here at work. <laughs> I, I think so. I think that's what's been driving uh, it. Clearly, you know, this is how you want to get ahead as a historian, appear on Mad's podcast. So you've been on to talk mostly about World War Two. I think we've had you. I mean, that's your area of specialty, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Second World War is my main bag. Uh, it was my grandparents' war. And talking to them growing up, every story, nearly every experience um, from all four grandparents always came back to the war in some shape or form. So I grew up listening to their stories, their experiences. I grew up in um, both in their house as well as my own, just lots of books. And I was able to follow my interest in the Second World War through my formal studies. And then I was able to get a job working here at the Memorial some 13 years ago. And for most of that time, I've concentrated on Australia's involvement in the Second World War. But we've also done, um, as is the nature of working here and as a public historian, various other different activities. So looking at Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, uh, more recently Australia's commitment to the conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, but the Second World War is always going to be my main love in the area of interest and researching and publications. And in the new role, so Head of Military History, is that the new title? Yeah, that's right. So the Military History section, um, we are a group of around about a dozen historian and editors um, within the section as well as the Memorial's Indigenous Liaison Officer. Uh, And so it's a a broad skill set and with the historians, most of us have a sort of conflict um, specialty. Uh, so the Second World War, First World War, Vietnam or uh, Afghanistan as well as peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. So my role is largely now management uh, but we still have a lot of exciting research projects. So I'm looking at an edited volume on Australia's involvement in the Second World War. I've got my long-term research interest in the siege of Tobruk and of course uh, Australia's involvement in the Pacific War. Um, always lots of different activities um, around that as well. Fantastic. Well, great to have you back on the podcast again, Carl. Uh, And if you haven't listened to Carl's 
previous episodes go back and do because they've been some of the most engaging we've done in the whole series. Sitting to my right, Dr. Kerry Neal. Kerry, welcome to the podcast. First time we've had you here. Tell us about your work at the Australian War Memorial. Hi, Matt. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Um, I've been at the Memorial now for well over a decade. Um, I'm currently working in the heraldry and technology section in a curatorial role. And most recently, um, the biggest project that I've worked on is the After the War exhibition, which was the Memorial's centenary of the end of the First World War um, exhibition that opened last year looking at the consequences of all conflicts that Australians have been involved in over the last hundred years. I just went and looked at that exhibition. I just walked through well, just before we came into this, uh, this interview. And um, congratulations. It's, it's, it's a fantastic and an interesting way of looking at a chat. People hear me bang on about this all the time. I, I don't think we spend enough time talking about the aftermath of these big wars. And it was just a fantastic exhibition. Some some fascinating artifacts that that tell this story. Was it was it was it a difficult exhibition to put together? It was an exhibition that I've. It's the sort of exhibition I've always wanted to work on here at the memorial. Uh, it was emotionally, I think, quite a challenging exhibition for myself and the team. Um, there's a lot of very personal stories, looking at loss, grief the sacrifice that families make, as well as those um, men and women who've served and returned home to a, a very different life. It's also looking at the society and also those family units that they're returning home to as well. What are some of your favourite items that are in that exhibition? Look, there's a few that spring to mind. Firstly, there's this very simple biscuit tin um, from the Vietnam War era that I think most of us can probably identify a, a biscuit tin in the home that's filled with either grandma's sewing items or trinkets and things that have been collected over the years. And this particular tin is actually still filled with the Anzac biscuits that Terry Handel's mother and sister baked for him and sent over to Vietnam for him to share with his mates. Um, the sad part about the story is though... Terry was killed in November 1966 and the unopened biscuit tin was returned to his family um, and has remained unopened to this very day and we won't open it here at the memorial. It remains basically a, a shrine, a memorial to Terry's memory. That's what I love about items and about artefacts because they're, they're, they tell such a greater story than just their, their mere form, their mere shape. It's, it's, there's so many wonderful stories and tragic stories intertwined with just about everything you see in these galleries, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, we did want to make sure that there was a balance of stories that also talk about the resilience and the recovery of men and women who've served. Um, so particularly looking at more recent conflicts, we were able to focus on things that are very familiar to people like the Invictus Games, which were actually held in Sydney last year that coincided really well with the exhibition. And so looking at the way that those men and women who've returned with, in the most case, physical wounds, but emotional and psychological as well, have really taken to adaptive sports and that sense of teamwork beyond the military environment, but still representing their country and serving together in a way in the sporting field um, were some really uplifting stories that we found as well. I like how you've embraced um, the modern era as well because I saw in the, um, the small section um, dedicated to Poppy Pierce, who was killed in Afghanistan, the wonderful story of his daughter uh, as a 17-year-old performing on The Voice in tribute to her, to her dad and, uh, and the, the clips from that, that show there. So I, yeah, I, I just really loved it. I thought it was a great demonstration of the, the repercussions of service, the repercussions of loss, and we don't spend enough time 
thinking about what happens when the guns fall silent. Exactly. And what we were able to to do, not just focusing the exhibition on the consequences of the First World War, bringing it out to cover those hundred years of conflicts, you really started to see the themes and the patterns of, of loss, of sacrifice, of family grief, and that generational impact that war can have. Um, no matter what conflict it was, we still found stories where, you know, a mother's loss, it doesn't matter what generation you're looking at, the fact that even from one or the case of one family, seven sons go off to war and don't return home, those stories, it doesn't matter what time frame you're looking at, people will relate to those. The impact it would have on a family and a community losing that many sons from Absolutely. one family. Just just astonishing. Um, how long is the exhibition still open for? Because it's reaching its final days, isn't it? Yes. So it, it opened just around Armistice Day last year, um, but and we close on the 15th of September. So you've only got a short amount of time to get in and have a look at it. I think when this podcast comes out, people have a mere number of days to go and check it out. But uh, if you're in Canberra, certainly go and do it because it's it's well worth seeing. And again, telling that story... Uh, so well of a, a chapter of the history we don't relate to as often as we should, which is what happens after the war. Thank you, Kerry. Great to have you here. Uh, sitting next to us as well is Dr. Lockie Grant. Lockie, again, first time on the podcast. Welcome. Tell us about the work that you do and uh, and the, your work at the War Memorial. Uh, thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been at the Memorial since 2011 and um, I've been working and researching mainly on the story of Australian prisoners of war in the Second World War. And some of my highlights at the Memorial include the publications I've um, I've published in those areas, including uh, the Changi book, which brought together various items from the memorial's collections, um, the uh, the writing of the men themselves, um, the objects, the photographs, the artworks they did, all into all into one one publication. And I've also worked on a variety of exhibitions over the years and displays in the memorial. And some of those highlights would be our Holocaust display in the Second World War Gallery and our Mill Bay display in Anzac Hall. I've got to say, looking around the room, uh, I am by far the oldest member of this team sitting here. Um, talk to me about how you got into military history and this idea. It really seems that there's, and I'm so excited by this, there's a new generation of young historians coming through. No disrespect to the more esteemed members of the history community who've been around for a long time, but I think it's very exciting to see that younger historians are coming through and, and, and doing such great work. How did you, Lockie, get into military history and... And, and what is it that drew you to this field in the first place? Well, I have to say, a bit like Carl, it's very much been part of my family history. Um, uh, my family from um, regional Victoria, from Dalesford and, and Ballarat area, and uh, my, both my uh, uh, grandfathers served in the Second World War. And uh, my nana served in the Air Force, and um, their uh, their fathers and uncles all served in the First World War too. So um, it was always part of the family story. Um, Christmas time, all those family gatherings. Uh, Grandpa was all often talking about things that happened to him during the during the war. For him, it seemed to be he was a six year veteran from 1939 to 45, and served in the uh, Mediterranean in New Guinea, and. Um, uh, well, he never spoke about the combat element of it. He did see quite a few few battles and campaigns along the way, but just the anecdotes of, of seeing the pyramids, seeing the world, um, was something that was obviously really special in his his lifetime. Um, and to counter that, my my mother's father rarely spoke about his years in New Guinea at all. He, he shared a few snippets with uh, my brother and I, but never spoke to them uh, with my mum or my uncle. So. The war was always here, and then I visited the War Memorial on a family holiday to Canberra, 
uh, when I was about seven and I thought the place was pretty amazing. The dioramas in particular drew me in, which of course are still there on display. And uh, from that, that uh, moment onwards, I had an interest. And I think a particularly influencing thing on me as well was the, uh, the 50th anniversary of D-Day in 1994. And then I think the Australia Remembers um, campaign that the Keating government had in 95. There was a lot of documentaries and a lot of things on TV. And um, from then, I had the opportunity to study history at uni, and it's what I wanted to do. It's one of those topics I think we're going to dig into in a bit more detail is Australia and D-Day because um, a topic that I think is is, is very popular with people. Um, I'm going to throw it open to Carl and Kerry, though. This idea, firstly, do you see that there are young historians coming through? Is Am I correct in my assessment that there seems to be a, a whole new wave of young historians coming through? And is this important? Is this is this going to tell history in a new way that we haven't seen before? Uh, absolutely, I think so. And I, I suspect the young historians, I'm using air quotes here, I think they've always been there, but with social media, it gives everyone a much greater platform to be visible. And so that always certainly helps because back in the day when you're starting out, what was how did you become a historian? So you went to university, you studied, did postgraduate studies, you wrote a thesis, and then you kind of you know, you did lots of publications and you tried to shop around for um, uh, to get a job. So that was great, but it was the traditional method now, you still need to go through a lot of those formal training, the formal procedure. However, things such as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, various other different groups, networks, um, it just gives people more of an opportunity, I think, to to make a profile and to become present and to contribute to debate rather than, saying putting an article up for a peer-reviewed referee journal, which can sometimes take between 12 to 18 months for that article to then be published and read by a small you know, readership. These days, you can make a post on social media, you can tweet something and go to a battlefield. And there's, yes, there's much more of an instantaneous response, but it's just a bit easier to help build a profile. And I think, too, that then encourages you to do more, to make those informal networks in addition to your, the formal studies or attending conferences. All those traditional um, methods still exist and they're still really important because you have to have something substantial behind that tweet to back it up. Uh, but I do think there's now just more of a, a general interest and. In, I'm a big advocate of using social media to get your stories and to make these networks and connections. So I do think it's an exciting time. I mentioned and spoke about this before. And it's a great way for everyone to become involved within the, in the field and within the community. And overall, that experience has been, in my point of view, though, overall that experience has been very positive. I think what I've noticed, um, and Kerry, I'll bring you in a minute to hear your thoughts about this as well, but you're so right, Carl. We, we do live in an era where I know social media gets a bagging and there is a dark side to it, I think we would all agree. But when it comes to a field like this for history, the word I use is conversation. You can, you know, I know that, Carl, you're on Twitter, for example, and so people can jump on Twitter and say, here's something interesting that I just found out about my family or I just saw a, a you know, a World War One artillery piece in my local park and it prompts a discussion and they can now have a conversation in a way they never would have been able to before. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, historians at the Australian War Memorial would have been virtually unreachable. You, the, 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 the ability to be able to actually speak to them one-on-one just wouldn't exist. Even what we're doing now, a podcast now where we're sitting here just having a conversation and inviting people to, to contribute and to, to listen in, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And, and obviously it's being driven by the new younger generation of, of historians. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And Matt, the, um, I think someone's used the term like the democratisation of the records as well. The, um, the National Archives has been digitising all those First World War service records and in the process of digitising the Second World War service records, it's been so easy for 
people to look up their relatives from those conflicts and, and find out about some of their family history. And so much of, I think, the interest in Anzac in um, the last um, couple of decades is driven from from the interest in, in family history and, and by, yeah, by people researching. It's the easy access to research to relatives. Kerry, what are your thoughts on the young generation of historians? Well, I was actually just going to follow up what Lachlan was saying, that I think the availability of material, so whether it is a conversation that begins on Twitter or looking at a service record online, suddenly records that would have taken months to travel overseas, go to the archive, research through and find, you can now do digitally in a matter of minutes. And so conversations around the family dining table about family history suddenly become much more engaging and interesting when people can actually look back at the records relating to that that family member. Um, I mean, for myself, um, as opposed to the two gentlemen here, I don't really have that strong connection in my family history to the military. But again, looking at that 1995 Australia Remembers uh, experience. I think that a lot of students coming through at that particular age, um, I would have been about 11 and I had the opportunity to interview a veteran, a prisoner of war of a German camp. And that to me, I think, was my turning point in realising the privilege of hearing these men and women tell their stories and the fact that I can almost picture him now that Mr Dixon had not shared these stories with his family and his wife is sitting there beside him with tears streaming down her face as he's opening up to this young girl about the experiences and almost the guilt that he felt about being a prisoner under the Germans rather than the Japanese. And so to me that is what brought history to life and I think that there's probably quite a generation coming from that particular anniversary and I'd say that we'll see the same thing again coming out of the centenary of the First World War of those younger generation again looking at that particular history and and falling in love and finding those stories and that connection. And I think the thing that's key, it's not necessarily about, say, family history. While family history is that first exposure and the first hook, um, the exciting thing, new research and new researchers, is they're asking new questions. And so things such as sexuality, race, gender, ethnicity, um, you're opening up the field of, say, military history into a much wider field, much stronger discipline. Once upon a time, military history was really just tactics, plans, logistics. It was for staff corps officers to plan, you know, the next battle or the next war based on the previous war's experience. You will still need that element of military history. However, today, and just as we've already been talking about, military history is more than that. It is about the experience of the individual soldiers, but it's also experiences of people family at home coming back after the war. Um experiences of racial minorities within specific groups, relationships, um, lots of different fields and topics and avenues. And so having by having more people work in the space and being interested in the space, it creates new questions and it lets us think about these things in many different ways. And it gets you away from a very traditional narrative and approach to conducting history and what is therefore important or significant and really opens it up to make it much more about that holistic human experience and acknowledging that one person's experience will be different to someone else's based on their background, their sexuality, their gender, their identity, and that this is as important in the military history as it is, say, social history or in another discipline. 
do we run the risk with the availability of information, the ability for everyone to have an opinion? Do we run the risk that our understanding of our own history becomes a bit superficial? Do we run the risk that now that anyone can publish their own book or make their own YouTube video or record a podcast, is there a risk that our whole understanding of history, uh, that we're not looking deeply at it anymore, that everything becomes superficial? Is that a risk, do you think, in the future? Yep. I think superficial and very insular. And so you lose the bigger perspective about if you just tell Australian stories all of the time, that excludes the role of our allies. So what are the British and the Americans doing, for example? And then, of course, well, what are our enemies doing? Um, so if you could be, the, risk, the risk is it becomes too parochial. And if you solely focus on, say, an emotional reaction to something, so it's easy to talk about the First World War, but only frame it in terms of commemoration. How do we remember the First World War? We go to battlefields. Do you really go to battlefields or do you really go to, or are you going to cemeteries? You know, so there is a way of taking, um, of losing detail, of losing context. And so it's certainly a risk, but it will always come back to, well, what do you, what are the questions and what do you want to achieve? If you're really just about looking at your grandparents or their great-grandparents and placing their individual experience into a wider national narrative, then maybe that's all you need. Uh, it won't get you a PhD, but you don't need to have a PhD to have a love and a passion of history. I think um, I think you're right. And one of the things that, are, that perhaps we're seeing lately that, that is perhaps had a bit of a resurgence is the Anzac myth seems to be making a bit of a comeback. And no offence to people who want to jump on Facebook and Twitter and talk about it, but there is that does it, that is the most prominent thing that gets put forward is the Aussies won the war and the larrikin spirit and all these things. And that's fine. That isn't a, a discussion about that is a perfectly valid part of the story but i think one of the potential risks is that gets pushed a bit more front and center because it's sexy it's it's not sexy talking about the logistics of bringing food and water up to the front line that that does not get a lot of airtime on facebook but talking about someone who won a victoria cross and then went back to his girl and lived on a farm and was the archetypal aussie that gets a lot of time we see that everywhere we see it through all media we see it in documentaries we see it in movies as they get made these days so it's always been around but i wonder if it is more of a risk factor now that uh, that, that that this information is so accessible and so easy to put it front and center well i had a very interesting um experience on anzac day this year Matt. i attended the um ceremony at polygon wood for the first time and uh the polygon wood ceremony is organized by the uh, local guides association in epa and um the one thing that really struck me i i host a group of australian school students over over there each year and and attending the polygon wood ceremony was really interesting was because it's very much an international ceremony it was very much an australian new zealand shared ceremony for a start but of course it was a very much uh we had heard the belgian story as part of the ceremony as well and uh um, there was emphasis on not forgetting the local communities who rebuilt their cities and uh, and uh, all the work that had to go into rebuilding the countryside as well. And there was even um, recognition of uh, reconciliation between uh, the countries of Europe as well with uh, recognition of Germany too. So it was a really interesting Anzac Day ceremony, um, seeing that very international um, uh, approach to it, which... Uh, uh, you don't always see here, and it's something very much the students picked up upon uh, coming to, from uh, their small towns from different states and territories in Australia. So, uh, yeah. Do you think that's something we don't do enough, the the opposite perspective of the war, you know, looking at the, the, the war from a concept of our enemies? And the, the, the thing that prompted me was not just your comment there, Lockie, which was excellent, but I've just come from, at the start of the month, I was in Cowra for the 75th anniversary of the Cowra breakout, the big Japanese 
breakout from the prisoner of war camp. And I think Cowra is a is a model of not just reconciliation but perspective because there were representatives from Japan there. It was a, it was a joint um, commemoration. Um, but it's not something that we typically see. I'm always amazed that when we go to a service, particularly on a battlefield, when we go, we see it at Gallipoli, obviously, we see the Turkish side in a big way in Gallipoli. But I'm always surprised you go to the Western Front, uh, Normandy, you, so many of these commemorations, and there might be a token representative. There might be a, you go to Pearl Harbor, and there might be the Japanese deputy ambassador might be sitting there and make a short speech, or there might be one German representative at Normandy. But it just it just seems that that we tell it from a victor's perspective. And it might be a little bit that the these people that were defeated in these battles don't particularly want to spend a lot of time thinking about them. Um, but the, the the concept of commemoration that that people who fought in these battles on either side were all just in the main young blokes just trying to stay alive. Do you think we miss that a little bit, not just in commemoration, but also in our study of history? We miss that perspective of what happened on the other side? Well, um, absolutely, Matt. My work over the years on prisoners of war, one of the focuses of that has been the interactions between the prisoners and, and the people in the countries where the prisoners were being, being held, um, mostly across Asia and Pacific. And um, because with the focus on the Anzac legend, the story is often that um, the Australians survived captivity because of um, the, the bondness of uh, mateship. And uh, so the Australians helping each other as prisoners. But when you look into the story of the prisoners of war, um, they always talk about the assistance um, that they got from local people wherever they were, uh, often um, chi- uh, sympathetic Chinese in places like uh, Singapore, uh, in Thailand, but also local Thais would uh, provide food and medicine to the prisoners or sometimes trade with them. Um, but even in Japan, I found extraordinary looking through our collections of diaries here, uh, the amount of prisoners that talk about the contacts they formed with uh, local Japanese civilians during their time of imprisonment. And these, these sort of stories go against the flow of what we how we kind of understand um, Australia and the, the attitudes of veterans of that conflict towards um, the people of the region. I wonder if there's something here about the physical distance that Australia has from so many of the the main battlefields, the areas that Australians have fought in, that unlike, um, I guess, local communities and towns overseas where their history is literally scarred across their landscape, Australians don't necessarily see that. And so what the majority of the public hear are the stories of those men and women who've come back or the stories of the battles over there. And I just wonder if that's something to explain part of the reason that uh, we do become a little bit insular and and sort of inward looking that we look at the Australian experience in particular uh, when people are interested in their their own personal histories. Well, it's a great point. The soldiers themselves didn't have a very broad perspective. If they went off to fight in New Guinea, (laughs) fought on the Kokoda track or they went to Gallipoli, they didn't have a broad perspective on the local people and the, the broader picture of the war, they just they had their little job to do and they did it and they came back and that's what they told their family. So it's a really good point. Um, we had some questions sent in from people. Do we want to move on? Any any final thoughts on the, these broad topics we've opened with before we dig into these questions? I asked, uh, I put a couple of notes up on social media asking people to send in questions um, just, to, just to use as some anchor points, a great opportunity for people to get their questions in front of some of Australia's leading historians. And thank you everyone who sent in questions because we had some brilliant responses. Um, so I'm looking forward to digging into a few of these. We use a, I think these will kick off some good, uh, some good conversations. Um, well, let's start with this one, Lockie, because I know that coincidentally this is an area of great interest for you and you, you know a lot about this. Um, but John Flower wrote that he'd be interested to know how many Australians went ashore on D-Day 
and in what capacity and whether these men or women are remembered anywhere for that action. And this is a really interesting one because we had the D-Day anniversary only a couple of months ago. I did a lot of press and a lot of interviews about it. There was a lot of interest in Australian involvement and there was also a great lack of knowledge about anything the Australians may have done. People have been uh, influenced a lot by media, by films, by Hollywood. Uh, So we've seen a lot of an American story. We've seen a bit of the British story. Um, But it very was... D-Day was an absolutely vital coalition effort, wasn't it? Lockie, can you shed some light on Australia, D-Day, and what was going on? Yeah, um, great question, John. Uh, Australians were among more than a dozen allied nations represented in the D-Day landings. Uh, Over 3,000 Australians were involved on 6th of June and thousands more were involved... Uh, throughout the Normandy campaign, because we always have to remember it's more than just the 6th of June. This campaign goes for uh, 10 weeks. That's some, I, I think that's the, the number one thing we can take out of the early part of this conversation is the distinction between D-Day, which was one day, June 6, 1944, and the several months of the Normandy campaign, which was vital in the war in the West. Uh, I mean, a vast majority of um, those Australians were serving in uh, the Royal Air Force or, there's a, or in Royal Australian Air Force squadrons, and about 500 were serving in the Navy. But in terms of uh, going ashore on D-Day, there are a few Australians. There's uh, over a dozen uh, Australian Army officers of the RAF who are um, serving on attachment with the British Army to learn lessons about the amphibious operations to come back to Australia. Uh, and there's also uh, war correspondents, a very famous one, obviously Chester Wilmot. He landed uh, by glider with the 6th Airborne Division. He was attached to the, uh, the, the British Airborne Division uh, reporting for the BBC. Uh, but there's also an unknown number of Australians who enlisted directly into the British forces during the war. And when I say unknown, it's because it's hard for us to uh, identify who some of these individuals are. But the more and more research we've been, uh, been doing over the years, we're, we're aware of quite a number, including our nurses who, who uh, landed with the, the British services. Um, and also uh, one remarkable story is of a... Um, a lady named Olive Sherrington from Sydney. who uh, She was on holidays in England when the war broke out and so enlisted in the Mechanised Transport Corps. And she was one of the last uh, British women to be evacuated from France, actually after Dunkirk. So she was evacuated from uh, the, the Brittany coast, uh, driving a convoy of ambulances, saving a whole bunch of English soldiers um, after the fall of France. But she was one of the first British women to return to Normandy as well. She drove her truck off a landing craft uh, a couple of days after the landings. There was, I, I saw during the uh, commemorations, there was, I think there was only one Australian soldier who was killed on June 6th. I know we lost a lot of airmen and sailors, etc., but I think there was only one Aussie soldier who was actually killed. And Pete Smith, one of the historians that leads our tours, always takes Aussies to that grave. Um, I, again, I think serving with the British forces. But... Um, D-Day is an interesting one, wasn't it? Because in terms of planning operation, the Australian contingent was small, but I think representative of how important the coalition was in, in the not just D-Day itself, but the defeat of Nazi Germany in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australia was a very small nation at the time. We have to remember we only had a population of 7 million. Uh, we also have to remember the context of the global war. A vast majority of Australia's resources are still uh, in fighting in the region of the Pacific um, driving that Japanese advance back. But the fact that we have 16,000 airmen based in Britain at this time, uh, that's the size of a division at that time in, in the jungle in, in New Guinea. So that's a, if we put a thing about it from that perspective, um, Australia's contribution, particularly to that air war in Europe, 
um, is quite um, significant for a small nation such as Australia. Yeah, and that was a conscious decision too because so the Australian government receives a fair bit of flack with the recall of the AIF from the Middle East from the Middle East in um, late 1941 and early 42, bringing those soldiers back to fight in the Pacific. However, the government was very mindful of that criticism and they didn't want to... So while these soldiers have come back, there's a conscious decision to not turn off that pool of airmen who were going across to Europe to fight in the active air war. So part of the reason you still have some 16,000 airmen flying with the RAF in Britain is so that Australia consciously consciously can be seen to be fighting against Nazi Germany um, all the way through to the end of the war. So in many ways, we do focus on the Pacific for the latter part of the Second World War by keeping our airmen in active in the air war against Nazi Germany, Curtin and the Australian government are like, look, we're still here. We're still fighting Nazism. Um, and so it's a conscious decision. It wasn't just by luck or coincidence. It was really an attempt for Australia, which was really only medium-sized power, to maintain an active and a recognisable active role in this global conflict. Kerry, you mentioned earlier, I think it was you that touched on reconstruction and rebuilding after war. And there was one question here that i thought was really interesting actually that was Lockie that said that there we go so I'm, I'm doing really well with my notes so far uh but there's a good question here about reconstruction um which was asked by sarah morris which was about australia's role in the reconstruction specifically of ipa after the first world war but i think more broadly it's it's a really good question because the rebuilding of um europe of the rebuilding of these towns and cities after not just the first world war but the second world war as well was absolutely vital did australia play a role in in contributions to, to rebuild some of these places after the wars? Uh, well, not in terms of the city of city of Ypres, uh, which is interesting interesting case actually, because I mean some of the most iconic photographs we have in the War Memorials collection are of the the ruins of the city of of Ypres. Um, obviously, Frank Hurley, some of Frank Hurley's photographs, um, very iconic for for listeners at home, and. There was a lot of debate at the end of the war about uh, whether to actually build, rebuild Ypres or not. Some, uh, and Churchill was one of the advocates, uh, was to leave Ypres in ruins as a memorial. Obviously, the um, citizens of Ypres wanted their city rebuilt. That wasn't a, um, a designated outcome, and it was rebuilt. It was, uh, it was rebuilt using uh, funds requ- acquired from uh, reparation payments for, from the Germans. And they... And again, there was debate on whether to rebuild it as a modern city or to rebuild it... Uh, as it was in that Flemish medieval Renaissance style, uh, which is so evocative of the city itself. And, of course, they went for uh, to rebuild the old city um, as close as it was. And amazingly, by 1934, they had rebuilt the Tower of the Cloth Hall. So only 15 years, 16 years after the end of the war, they would made some headway in, um, in rebuilding their old city. But, of course, there's other places, uh, uh, other cities that Australia did contribute too, and uh, most notably was uh, the Victoria School in Villas Bretina. The funds were uh, raised by school children in Victoria. I think originally the town requested that we pay for their local abattoir to be rebuilt, and uh, but we decided that a school was a bit more, uh, a bit sexier. Kerry, in the the work that you've done, this idea after the war and, and rebuilding in many ways, the the people of Europe had to literally rebuild after the First World War and after the Second World War. Plus, they also had to go through the the social implications, the family implications of having lost lost men. Do, did you do you feel that this experience of rebuilding after the war, trying to 
put the pieces of people's lives back together was a shared experience, that the people of Belgium understood what the people of Britain were going through and the people of Britain understood what Australians were going through. Was Were all nations going through these things in a similar way or was it was it isolated? Was Australia trying to put the pieces back together in its own way, which was quite separate from what was going on in other nations that have participated? Look, I wouldn't say that it's it's isolated as such, but obviously there are going to be significant differences between areas that need to, as we've just heard from Lockie, rebuild schools, rebuild cloth halls and rebuild infrastructure to that that level of cities and towns that have just been decimated. Uh, whereas in Australia, it was more about rebuilding the social norms and rebuilding community where young men had gone off and had basically, they talk about a lost generation and while that's a bit of a catchphrase, um, there are towns in Australia where it was the bulk of young men who went off to serve and when a number of them don't come home, how do you fill that void um, in terms of of farmland and of getting men back with the the soldier settlement scheme we saw for Australia that was something that particularly didn't work well in Australia but for examples that I've looked at in say Canada there was a bit more success Um, so I think there's a, a shared sense of the need to rebuild a life um, which I think is shared amongst most of the, the combatant countries, um, whereas it's obviously to differing levels when we're talking about buildings and infrastructure. This idea that soldiers would return to a land fit for heroes that we said after the First World War and the Second, you know, Second World War as well, and Vietnam, you know, the, the, it's an ongoing constant comment that these men and women deserve the best that we can give them. And almost universally, we fail in that endeavour as a society and the, the problems that, that come from turning civilians into soldiers and then selling, sending them off to war are, are far-reaching. Is there an example of when we got it right? I know, I know we talk a lot about problems after the First World War leading into the Great Depression and we talk about Vietnam and PTSD in modern conflicts. Is there an example of when we got it right when we actually did look after our soldiers when, when they came back and we, we did make a land fit for heroes? I think we definitely see examples of that in the exhibition where it's again more on a on a community level particularly after the first world war where someone like Gus Keon who was a double leg amputee who comes back to Tumut where he'd grew up he had all of the the family and friends that knew him there and they banded together to build a home for him that was adapted to his needs Um, and you see a lot of those sorts of stories where individuals are really supported by the communities around them Um, obviously when we talk about veterans health veterans physical reconstruction and rehabilitation you do see um, significant improvements over the conflicts where you look at say, the artificial limbs and the reconstructive surgery that was available after the First World War as really being the the start of something that's quite remarkable now when you look at the adaptive equipment that's used for the Invictus Games or the prosthetic limbs that are available now. And so those sorts of improvements, I think, have, have really helped shape um, a veteran's experience post their deployment, post their um, military life, moving into a civilian world. It is a curious question, though, because for the world wars and our pre-1914 commitments, the forces who were sent overseas are essentially citizen soldiers. So they're pre-war civilians, have a global conflict, they then mobilise, they join up, um, with the expectation they'll serve for the duration of the conflict. And then when the war is over, then they'll return back to a civilian life. 
And so it is a curious question, and at what extent is can you ever um, provide enough for these returning men and women? I think in many ways, even during the interwar period, um, looking at some of the work that Joan Beaumont is doing right now, looking at soldier settlement, looking at repatriation, look at pension, pensions from the Repat Commission, for example, even during the interwar period, Australia is still spending more on veterans. Well, the, veteran, the term veteran isn't used until after the Vietnam War. So um, after the First World War, Australia is still spending more on returned men and returned women than any other country within the Commonwealth. Certainly, we know with hindsight that it probably wasn't enough and it wasn't enough money spent in the right areas. And then when the war is finishing and there's a sort of a period of demobilisation, part of that was opportunities to learn skills like civilian skills, trades, opportunity to go to university. Um, You had your deferred pay so you could save up and buy a block of land as well as various other means. You had soldier settlement the second time around. was a much more successful attempt. So it's curious because in many ways, you know, the government has always been mindful of this. Governments have been mindful of this criticism and they do their best, but is it enough? And is it certainly in the right ways? And so what we've seen a lot of, um, say, with Kerry's work, for example, is the need to address, say, your physical wound so if a soldier comes back with an arm lost or a leg lost or with lucky stuff with his PAs, prisoners of the Japanese, you know, we concentrate on the physical injuries. But now what we're talking about in modern-day veteran and veterans' health is the, the mental injuries and the moral injuries. Um, is there enough to address not necessarily just a serviceman but his wife and their family? So in many ways it's just a... It's constantly changing and evolving. And in, in some ways, it's easy to say, oh, not enough was given to our veterans. But then how much is too much? Um, or could you ever give enough to these men and women who've sometimes been away for six years in the case of the Second World War? And say if they endured being a prisoner of the Japanese on Thai Burma Railway, that was horrific. Like, what could you do um, to get those, to get past the the physical impact of uh, and the health injuries of being prisoner of war, the mental injury, the trauma, as well as the absence, you know, not being in touch with your family for two and a half, three years. How do you ever get that time back? I've noted that today, even though I just used the phrase PTSD, often we're dropping the D now, we're just calling it PTS, under, with the recognition that it's not a disorder. That that that, and, and I think that's important. I think that's an important step to say that the expectation is if you go into combat and have to, kill and fight for your life, it is going to mess you up. You're, you're not going to be the same when you get back. And I think it's important that that's recognised. And I, I think there was a feeling with modern wars, perhaps because we had such long peri- a long period of peace before Afghanistan and Iraq, I think potentially we did drop the ball a little bit in terms of our, our understanding of the effects it would have. But it's good to see that we've caught up again. It's good to see that we have now got programs in place. It seemed a little bit slow to start. And unfortunately, we lost a lot of good people who... Who, who didn't receive the help that they needed. But, uh, but it's good to see that, that hopefully now we've, we're up to speed a, a little bit more than, uh, than we have in previous times. Because in the First World War, they had no idea this was going to occur. There'd never been a war on that scale before. Um, but, but hopefully we've learnt some of those lessons. Um, moving on to something that relates very closely to reconstruction and coming back after the war is a question that um, Mary Booth asked, um, which was about the repatriation of soldiers killed overseas. And specifically with the First World War, this is... Uh, this is particularly notable. Um, Mary asks, just wondering if there was ever a suggestion of repatriating the deceased soldiers back to Australia. Uh, did the families ever get the opportunity to have bodies buried at home? Um, and of course, it varies on depending on the war. Um, but looking at the First World War as an example, this was 
devastating in its scale, the, the most costly war Australia's ever been involved in, um, not just Australia, all nations at that time, the most costly war they'd been involved in. Um, who would like to take this one? Who would like to talk a little bit about graves overseas, decisions to bring them home? Well, I'm happy to jump in here. Go for it, Kerry. We we do actually deal with that a little bit in the exhibition, uh, trying to bring a sense of what visiting a cemetery over on the Western Front um, is like today. Um, Obviously, at the time, uh, families really didn't have any opportunity to go and visit the graves of their loved ones overseas. And obviously, when we talk about um, just the, the overwhelming number of men who were dying over um, on the Western Front and in other theatres of war, even though there there was obviously consideration given to bringing the bodies back, it was just logistically not going to be possible. Um, and so we get the creation of the Imperial War Graves and then later the, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, um, where basically a plot of land in a far distant country becomes a part of Australia's soil and that's where the bodies of the men and women um, who fought for Australia are are interred. Um, So families really were given the opportunity to engage in that that burial process through writing epitaphs for the the headstones, Um, but that was fraught with its own difficulties as well when you're asked to capture all of the the feelings and the sentiment that you want to express um, for your loved one in, you know, a a restricted number of characters. It's a bit like trying to work out everything that you want in a tweet, we refer to it these days. Um, So there there was still a connection that families had to the burial of the dead in the First World War, but obviously, um, and Bart Zeno has done a lot of work on this with, you know, just that that distance of grief um, and the fact that travel today, you know, quite often um, I've, I've been on tours over to the Western Front and to Gallipoli, you find that it's, you know, two or three generations removed that are the first ones of their family that are paying their respects at their ancestor's grave and that becomes something of a, a pilgrimage and something quite special um, for the family. I think without those cemeteries, we would have lost a great connection to the history because had the bodies been repatriated and were buried in family plots in cemeteries all over Australia, um, we wouldn't have that focal point. I don't think too many Aussies are going down to their local cemetery and wandering around looking for war graves. Some of us do, and if you do, I certainly encourage you to do. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. But in general, I don't think Australians are wandering down to their local community cemetery and, and looking out for war graves. So the the focal point that is provided by having cemeteries, which are lasting legacies of these battles, and often the only legacy of these battles that remains on the ground. It's, it's a real testament to the work that the Imperial War Graves Commission did and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission now um, in creating and maintaining these incredible monuments to, to thousands of fallen men. The question is, will they do it in the future? <laughs> they, they must reach a point where the French get a little bit sick of the number of cemeteries there. And they are maintained so beautifully. That's the one thing that you really notice no matter where you're going through, you sort of come to the next cemetery and it's just absolutely pristine and the locals take such pride themselves in having a Commonwealth War Grave um, cemetery in the area. And as you were saying, it is that mark where you can go to somewhere like Tynecott and you are almost overwhelmed by the, the white, the sea of white with the headstones. It just tends to kind of peter off into the the horizon almost. It's just so overwhelming in its size. Or then you come to a tiny little cemetery where there's only two or three headstones and it's in the middle of a farmer's 
field where everywhere else is being farmed and um, quite productive and then you've got this, this cemetery that is just a mark on the landscape but is held in such respect by the locals as well that it's maintained just absolutely beautifully. And again, the, as we touched on earlier, the digitisation of records. So once upon a time, families might know there's a relative buried somewhere in France or Belgium but not know where or how to find it uh, without writing to the um, Commonwealth War Graves Commission. But now it's easy to find. Uh, you can, then you can look up their service record, find out about their story. Uh, so families are very well informed of, often when they're visiting these places and uh, but the um in terms of the repatriation of the bodies the the um government changed the policy in 1966 during the vietnam war and uh, some of the early casualties in vietnam were buried in uh, terendak in, in malaysia and um families were from that point of those who were buried in, in terendak were given the option to whether to repatriate um the um the, the bodies of, of um, the vietnam soldiers and 30, 33 of the 36 um, took up that offer and repatriated, but there's still a few buried in Terendak in Malaysia from the Vietnam War. I think it's reflective as well of obviously more modern conflicts is that hopefully we're never going to see again the, the scale of casualties we saw in the First and Second World War. Um, and so um, you were right, Kerry, what you said, the reason they didn't come home is there was just no, there was no way to bring them home. There was no possible way to find shipping and, and they wanted to focus on the living soldiers. They had enough living soldiers to bring back. Um, there, there was just no way to bring back deceased soldiers as well. Um, but I think obviously it's a reflection of the, the fact that we would expect casualties to be hopefully lower in, in future conflicts and logistics mean that uh, we can bring them back. Um, so I, I think that uh, I can't imagine that policy would um, would change from the from the concept that we bring our soldiers home. Um, anything else to add, Carl? Do you want to add anything for World War Two perspective? Uh, it's a similar sort of thing of the Second World War because by that time the tradition had been well established in having the temporary battlefield cemeteries near where soldiers fought and were died, uh, and then later on they are largely consolidated into the larger cemeteries, so much more accessible. The thing that's interesting with the Pacific War, for example, is that along the Kokoda Trail, there was something like a dozen temporary battlefield cemeteries. And so when the war, well, not even before the war ends, since about 43, 44, a lot of those smaller graves and burial sites are consolidated around Bomana War Cemetery. And so part of the issue which the Australian, which was different to what had occurred in the First World War, in the Second World War, is the case, well, how do we maintain all of these small temporary battlefield graves in areas won't get a large number of visitors. Um, there's not a large population to support them. So in France and Belgium, you know, yes, the landscape in the Western Front is just dotted with Commonwealth War cemeteries and it's part of the landscape now. In the Second World War in the Pacific, in places around, well, Kokoda, Buna, Medang, Ley, Torikina, various other places, wherever Australians fought, Australians were buried. Um in 45-46, there's a very strong, clear appreciation that they just couldn't sustain having these temporary small little battlefield cemeteries everywhere across New Guinea. So they are consolidated and grouped around places such as Bamana, Leh, Bitapaka and Robao. Um, so the, the, the questions were very similar, um, but how you had to maintain these sites was an issue. And there's also the missing, but it's a different type of missing. So rather than being obliterated by artillery shell, an artillery shell in, say, the First World War uh, in New Guinea. It's a case of where is the bodies? They're lost in the jungle. If you've got an aircraft that's hit a mountain somewhere in New Guinea, in the highlands, 
it's just gone. Uh, and they never really had the resources to, to conduct a lot of exploration to look for the missing. So, for example, there's still several thousand missing servicemen from the Second World War in New Guinea um, who have no known grave. We very much focus on the missing from the Western Front. You know, these blokes are missing in the jungle, essentially, or they've been swept out to sea. The remains have been um, crocodiles. It's an interesting question. And um, we have to remember, too, some of those Second World War uh, cemeteries where the Australians are buried have been in places where there's been um, political turmoil over the years. They haven't always been easy to access, uh, uh, the cemetery in Burma, for example, at the, Bur- the um, Burma end of the Thai Burma Railway um, wasn't accessible for many years uh, due to the um, Myanmar government has only been accessible in, in, in the recent decade. And now again, I believe it's a, it can be harder to get to. But uh, And also in the Middle East and um, North Africa as well, uh, those graves in the Western Front have always been much more easier um, for Australian, Australian visitors to access. In some ways, I think that's the connection why people are interested in the topic, why there's the First World War resonates and there's a popular interest. Partly, it's because it's much easier to get to these battlefields and these burial sites, whereas even Tobruk and, and uh, El Alamein, you know, the travel advisory warnings make it very difficult for tourists to get to Tobruk to look at the cemetery uh, and even to visit Alamein. And then the other battle sites in other parts of the world it is a little bit of a question mark. It's not some of these places are not easy to get to, and you really have to be committed, either from a financial point of view or a security point of view. So, as we look forward in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, if people can't get to these places and they can't explore and create an experience for themselves, will that mean the interest will go away? Because um, I think there's a strong connection between making um, that experience of walking a battlefield and getting that sort of an emotional response to it. You can't get that from just looking at digitised documents or reading books. Um, the veterans will now pass within the next few years. So if you can't get to Tobruk, we get to Alamein or Tunisia or parts of the Pacific, will we lose interest in this story or will we just not tell their stories anymore? I think we already see that a bit with the Pacific Islands through the tour company that I run. We, in spite of the fact that the number of families that could point to these isolated little Pacific Islands where they had family members serve, virtually no one goes there. No, no one is visiting the Pacific because it's just too hard. But everyone is going to France, even though it might be great-great-uncle Bob who, who fought in France. They have no direct connection with their own. Their grandfather or father may have fought in some Pacific island, which is much closer to home. But it's just not on the tourist radar. On that point, is it important that we maintain these cemeteries, particularly in the more isolated places? As historians, what part of the story do cemeteries tell? Because we've already seen the French wishing to make changes to cemeteries, to move cemeteries, and, and the, the French are, are fairly stoic about the whole idea. Their, 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 their perspective on it is, well, there's so many of them buried. What's, you know, none of the relatives are left alive. What does it matter? Um, is it important that we spend the hundreds of millions of dollars it costs to maintain these cemeteries? Is it important that every cemetery is maintained? Or can you see a time in the future where we'll start to consolidate where we'll start to reduce the number what do we think well i think part of the original um theory with the imperial war grave cemeteries was recognizing that these were um particularly the soldiers from britain and the commonwealth were um fighting for um democracies our citizen soldiers um the Australians were all volunteers uh, i think that's been one of the important things in recognizing their place of death and giving them a sense of identity with a headstone 
um, and a place where relatives can visit. And I think um, going back to that original planning of why they established these cemeteries in the first place, we should try not to not to um, forget that. I can't see it ever getting to the point where we couldn't, that we wouldn't, or we shouldn't um, continue our interest in funding for it because there's such a strong, as part of its social bond, almost an unspoken contract between, you know, the community and the the government, the people who send our troops overseas. And I hope that we'd never get to that point as well, to be honest. I think it's something we should always, we need to do. We need to remember their service. We need to um, make sure these places are accessible. We can acknowledge that grave sites have moved, um, but so long as they're still there and people know how to get to them. It probably harks back to what we said at the top of the conversation as well, that um, that there's a resurgence of interest because of digital records, because of the availability of information. So perhaps we'll see... Uh, you know, more people going to these some of these isolated cemeteries simply because they can find out that, uh, you know, the great Uncle Bob is buried there and, and can go and visit as well. This is an interesting one. Um, Rich Willis posted a couple of interesting questions and I handpicked the, the, the ones that I think are most pertinent. But the one I wanted to look at is, this is a really interesting one that relates to the First World War. Lions led by donkeys is the, the this this concept that the men who fought in the front line were all heroes and the bungling generals that sent them to their death were, were incompetent. It seemed to come about in about the 1960s. It really seemed to take off after the Second World War, this concept, this, this, this re-envisaging the, the First World War. But it's, it's almost a universal um, concept that applies to every war, that this perception that the bloke holding the rifle in the mud is the hero we should be looking at. And not only, not only that the general in the chateau shouldn't be honoured in the same way, but almost the opposite, that that's a person to be disdained. What are your thoughts about this ongoing concept of the, the, the lions led by donkeys? Well, we'll never go away, this one, it seems, Matt. It looks always, uh, always reappears. Uh, I, think, uh, I think we put ourselves in the mindset at the time. I don't think planners at the time, as horrific as the First World War was, were wanting to sacrifice the lives of their troops to make objectives. They were very much wanted to achieve their objectives with as limited loss of life as possible. And they were faced with a really difficult circumstance with the defences on the Western Front, with all kinds of new weaponry and technology, um, that modern industrial warfare that we talk about in the First World War. It was really hard nut to crack for those in charge of planning those attacks. And they did come up with quite a series of innovations throughout the conflict that did uh, help help the Allies advance and, and limit the casualties. Um, and But the, the heroic individual soldier is very much one of those, uh, um, uh, I think, as we've spoken about, that democratic citizen soldier before. That's very much the way in which in Australia, at least, we've, we've sort of seen the, the, um, the veterans of the war. Yeah, it's very much a zombie myth. And in many ways, it really is a myth that should be and has been busted for about 30 years. There's been a substantial library of scholarship now that's looked at the learning process, both from the across the British and Imperial armies, as well as um, our allies, as well as the Germans, because they're learning, the Germans are learning and adapting in the same way the British forces are. And when I say British, I mean British, Imperial and the Commonwealth forces. And it must be incredibly frustrating if you're a First World War historian and you look at the work of people such as Gary Sheffield, Amy Fox, um, Belia Hampton, so many of our friends and colleagues have worked in this space and published in this space, where it's like, well, but it still is an idea that just won't go away. In part, I think it's because it is so hard for us today, 100 years after the conflict, 
still to make sense of it. So while it is something where you can see some very good leaders and commanders putting together those elements of the combined arms battle, for example, it's an incredibly hard problem, as Lockie alluded to. You've got an entrenched enemy who are well dug in, thick belts of barbed wire, artillery, machine guns. What's the problem? How do you come up with the, an equation to get past that? It's a very hard thing to do, and a lot of men die. And because of so many, because so many men die, killed or wounded or missing, it's hard for us now just to make sense of that. So you can, and sometimes the debate when looking at the learning process, it becomes a little bit static. So you can read a book and think, okay, well, this is actually what they were doing. This is why they came up with this process or they put these elements together. But at the end of the day, you still got 20,000 men that were killed. You know, Monash was one of the great battlefield commanders of the First World War. Hermel was great. However, even in winning that successful action, uh, a lot of men still died. So it's very hard to turn off that emotional response, particularly, again, if you go to the Western Front and all you see, because some people, just they'll just see cemeteries. And it's hard to, to get past that. However, the lines led by, or the, the lines led by donkeys, it's a, a myth that should really just go away. And we're all just sick of it. And there's legacies of the Second World War of um, this concept in a way too, because of the vast loss of British Commonwealth lives in the Second World War, British and Commonwealth commanders in the Second World War were very hesitant to um, to waste the lives of soldiers. They uh, and there's some historians who've been critical of that and pointing to the massive loss of life by um, the Nazis or the fascists or, or communists and Soviet Soviet Union. But just, they had a different perspective on um, individual liberties that the um, the Western allies um, respected the individuals and, and there was a real consciousness um, uh, an effort to to limit uh, the amount of casualties on, on our side in the Second World War. Even from just a logical point of view, it doesn't stand up very strongly because men, particularly in the First World War, were a scarce resource. It took a long time to train a man, equip him. They, they were short of men throughout the entire war. And even the most hard-hearted general still didn't want to kill his own men simply because they were not possible to be replaced. So, And I don't think most generals were these hard-hearted men. They were when they had to be. But at the same time, the, the armies don't want to kill their own soldiers. And if, if we ever see a battle that goes badly wrong, no one's happy about it. No general's going, oh, well, that was great for their morale and we'll do better next time. I mean, armies are not happy when large numbers of men get killed. So I don't even think it stands up logically. If you, if you even look at the records or, you know, I, I can't see any examples where, where any army was happy that they, they sent troops in and they all got mowed down. Obviously, mistakes were made. Obviously, there were attacks that went in, like in any war, where large numbers of men were committed perhaps when they shouldn't have been and were killed. Um, but I think the important thing here is intent. Did, did, were, were, were generals flippant about the lives of their men and negligent in sending them into conflicts? I, I don't think I've come across a single example that could, that could be justified um, in that respect. Kerry, did you see in putting the exhibition together, was there a feeling, was there ever any evidence that you saw in your work post-war that families at the time felt that their dead sons had been mismanaged on the battlefield and they would still be alive if a general had done things better. Did you see evidence of that or is this something that that's kind of evolved over the decades after the war? It seems to be something that's more evolved, um, it, as you say, in the decades after the war. That the the reason I ask the question is because you would think that would be the logical time. When you've yes. got grieving families and the wounds are raw and they've just buried their dead sons, they're never going to get to visit the graves. You'd think that was the time when people would say, well, let's launch an inquiry into what the hell was going on. But I, I haven't seen much activity that suggests there was any sort of backlash against the commanding officers. Just the opposite, that these men were fated as the heroes that won the war. 
And quite often what we have examples of are letters from those, not necessarily the highest ranks, but, you know, at the next level up um, from the, the rank and file sort of expressing their condolences to these families and talking about the, the lost son as somebody who they were proud to fight beside. Um, so there's almost a sense that these these men are taking ownership of the loss, but it's not that anybody's looking for someone to blame. The war is to blame, not individual leadership. Um, and so that's what I see with a lot of the correspondence from families that are looking for explanations or the details around the death of their loved ones. It was more they just needed to know the circumstances. They didn't need to know who was the person that sent that order and where that order came from. Um, so, no, I think it is something that's generated post-war and, as you say, quite some decades later that you really get that, that lines led by donkeys. And Haig, you know, Field Marshal Haig, who is probably most criticised in this uh, in this context, um, I always just come back to the fact that when he died, I can't remember the year, I think 1928, something like that, when he died, I think it was 400,000 men took an unpaid day off work, his former soldiers, to come and line the streets, uh, you know, right at the time of the Great Depression. I mean, it's it's... I just don't see any evidence that the men themselves ever felt anything except Haig was the hero who, who won the war. It's, it's, it's a curious one and it, it is persistent, unfortunately. But the, the answer to the question is, was there any justification in it? I think a resounding no. And please, if you're listening to this, do whatever you can to put this one to bed. It, it simply was not the case. Let's skip to another, a bit of a change of tack here. There's a question from Nikki Shea who asked about U-boat activity in Australian waters during both world wars. It's something, there's, there's something about submarines, isn't there? It's, 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 I mean, it is, it takes a huge amount of courage to go underwater in a metal tube. There's something about it that's considered a bit sneaky, a bit not conforming to the, the honour of war. There's just some mystique about submarines, isn't there? And the idea from an Australia, particularly during the Second World War, an Australia that felt under threat, the idea that there could be ships that you can't even see lurking in the waters waiting to waiting to sink any of our vessels. I think it was part of this story of the terror of Australia in those those early stages of the Second World War. What do you think about that? What, what, what was the what was U-boat activity in Australia during the... Well, obviously, Matt, as you say, the um, submarine activity, I mean, the Sydney Harbour attacks is one of those very iconic um, and memorable events of Australia in the Second World War. But uh, there's a continual sort of maritime threats around Australia during the war. U-boat activity didn't take place until 1944, though, so it was relatively late in the conflict. Uh, the surface raiders, German surface raiders, were causing more problems before then. Obviously, the famous incident with HMAS Sydney and, and the Cormorant um, was one of those. But um, in 1944, uh, the Germans sent four Type 9 U-boats uh, to patrol Australian waters. Uh, two of them were intercepted because uh, they were breaking the access codes and uh, two of the U-boats, because they were docking in Indonesia and Singapore and Malaysia and uh, the Allies knew they were on, on the way, uh, two of them were intercepted. Only one of them uh, got to working in, in Australian waters um, and it sunk two, uh, two merchant ships during that time. Uh, the first one was uh, the Liberty ship Robert J. Walker off the South New South Wales coast on 24th of December 1944. And later, the Peter Sylvester off Fremantle in February 1944, and that was uh, U-862. So it wasn't until quite late in the conflict. But throughout the whole of the war, 53 merchant ships were lost due to Axis shipping activity in Australian waters, and that was over 1,700 lives uh, lost. But uh, U-boat activity wasn't until, until later. 
I'm always astounded at the efficiency of submarines that the, during the Second World War in particular, that they, the, the, you know, the, the, the war in the, the battle in the Atlantic, the U-boat threat, this was a serious, this was a serious opportunity Germany had to, I won't say win the war, but to certainly turn odds in their favour. The Second World War submarines were incredibly efficient at sinking slow-moving merchant ships loaded with desperately needed supplies. Absolutely, Matt. I think in Australia, we, we know about the loss of ships like the HMAS Sydney and, of course, uh, from Cormorant, but also the, the hell ships in the Pacific too, the Montevideo Maru, uh, the Rakio Maru. Uh, 2,000 Australian prisoners of war died at sea in the Second World War when their ships were sunk uh, by um, Allied submarines when they were being transported to, by the Japanese to various parts of the Japanese Empire. But this is only a small part of the picture. The, the carnage at sea during the Second World War um, from submarines and other ships, and there's, there's Japanese ships sunk with up to five or 6,000 Japanese troops on board. Uh, there's transport ships sunk in Europe. Uh, the Lancaster leaving uh, France after the fall of France had possibly uh, 4,000 more. They don't know the exact number of British troops uh, on board uh, the Wilhelm Gust- Gustav in um, in the Baltic, uh, perhaps up to seven thousand, maybe more German troops on board, sunk by Russian submarines. It, it, the list just goes on, and uh, and it, it's it's one of these aspects of the Second World War. I think, because we have such a big army history, with uh, so many of our participants being soldiers on the ground, uh, it's not a, maybe not as big a part of the Australian story. But in terms of the global war. Uh, the absolute carnage on on the seas in the Second World War, with um, ships getting getting sunk, and uh, with large, extremely large losses of life um, in each incident. There's a there's an extraordinary map that you can download on the web showing um, shipwrecks just from the First World War around the British Isles from the First World War, and it is it looks like someone who has measles. It is so there are literally hundreds if not thousands of shipwrecks um, around just from the just from the activity. Incredible. You know, I've been to Guadalcanal many times and they call the, the stretch of water there Iron Bottom Sound because of the, the 200 ships and aircraft that are, that, are, that are sunk there. Just extraordinary how yeah. efficient sh- the sinking of ships was during the Second World War. Um, probably more so than sinking ships was just thinking about the tonnage that's lost. It's more the ability to interfere with an enemy's surface shipping. So, for example, with some having a couple of German raiders operate in Australian waters, how does the RN respond to that? We have to commit more ships looking for these raiders, the surface raiders or the submarines. So there's more of a, you have to deploy a lot of forces or naval assets and air assets as well to look for and to hunt and just on the precaution against um, submarines and surface raiders. So while the German surface raiders only had a couple in Australian waters in 1441, and likewise the Japanese submarines is quite active, there's not a lot of them, but they take up a lot of the REN and the RAAF's resources in hunting for them and just to be a deterrent. And if you think if you have to deploy Australian ships in Australian waters in the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, then that means you can't deploy them into other operational areas, and the same for aircraft, because they have to have... Um, the maritime connection is that the sea and the air working together. So you have more of an advantage, rather than just not just necessarily sinking an enemy ship or sinking an Australian ship or a merchant ship, if you have one or two vessels active in those waters, it means you have to deploy you know, five, six, seven ships, like a patrol boat, to look for them and to hunt for them. And you maintain aircraft and squadrons all up and down around the coast. So it's a good way to interfere with your um, opposing forces 
resources and assets. Well, and from a propaganda point of view, they had to do that because the the loss of a passenger ship to an enemy submarine or surface radar, the panic that that ensues, you know, instills in the population. Yeah, it's far in excess of the loss of one ship oh, or the number of lives. Absolutely, lives. it brings, but it brings home to Australia why the Second World War it touched us in all. It touched everyone in the war in many different ways. For example, there's in 1941, in early 1941, two ratings are killed um, trying to defuse a German sea mine in a beach around Adelaide. And that's before Cormoran is active in the Australian waters and, of course, loose Cormoran in Sydney. And, and um, with the Japanese hunting up and down the east coast of Australia, there's something like 100 attacks in Australian shipping during the Second World War, just within Australian waters. So it's a... Uh, it's, part of that story which today just isn't very well known we know about say sydney harbour and newcastle coming under attack we always have to mention newcastle when we mention sydney harbour um but you know the war touched australian shores and it was in australian waters more than any other conflict in the first world war as well to a lesser extent obviously during the second world war was when we saw that really take off the first world war to a lesser extent but even going back to the american civil war the the shenandoah the confederate raider that uh, that called in at melbourne quite famously and we did a podcast on that uh, fairly recently so check that out if you want to hear the full story of the shenandoah but just extraordinary the idea of these ships and the shenandoah never went anywhere near north america it was a it was a raider that that sailed under the confederate flag during the civil war that uh that, that never went to North America, it, it, but it, its job was just to capture as many and sink ships wherever it had the opportunity. So it's, it's, I think what we'll find is that this naval operation of raiders in foreign waters, it was much more expansive than we, we perhaps realise. It went on all over the world and with, with quite devastating results. Yeah. And Matt, one of the, one of the things in the Pacific War is, um, Australian listeners might not be aware of is the American submarine service was, uh, the high, had the highest losses on aggregate of any American service in the war, and I believe the in the German Navy was, was similar. But the important and crucial role they play in the Pacific is is often forgotten as well, because we know that Japan expanded its empire for for resources to help fuel its industries, the rubber and tin in Malaya, and the oil in the Dutch East Indies. Uh, but we know from the records that barely any, like only very small percentages of those raw materials actually got back to Japan. Uh, the American submarine force uh, was sinking the shipping along the way and that's the circumstances and when uh, prisoner of warships such as the Rakyo Maru uh, get caught up when they're in, in, in this submarine campaign when they're uh, being transported to Japan. We can't um, overstate the... Um the significance of shipping, particularly in the Second World War. Obviously, the Battle of Atlantic, it was hugely important, supplies coming across the Atlantic. But in the Pacific, when we're obviously talking about isolated islands, you needed ships to move men and material between them. And the, the war on the sea during the Pacific was what decided the war in the Pacific was where could troops be moved effectively, where could supplies be moved effectively, and how could we prevent the enemy from doing the same. So, um, yeah, absolutely fascinating, some of the some of the stuff that's been written about the, the sea war in the Pacific. It's it's ironic, isn't it, that we talk about the Pacific, that the war is the Pacific. We mentioned It's about the ocean, it's about sailing between islands, yet we focus much more on the land operations, which in, in many ways were secondary to these huge naval operations. Even when we look at something like Guadalcanal, there were seven massive naval battles which really determined the outcome of that of that campaign. Um, I suppose the land battles are always a bit more relatable uh, when we talk about soldiers putting on strapping on boots and slogging through the mud. Um, but the, the sea war, particularly during the Pacific, was for extraordinary. For listeners, Clayton Blair, American historian's work on the submarine war in the Pacific is still one of the great classics of uh, of the naval warfare in the Pacific. There's also a good bo- uh, book about the um, the patrol boats as well and JFK operating out of those islands, which was. Uh, 
you know, which again, courage to go out in those small patrol boats against, against the might of the Japanese destroyers. Um, lots of good resources out there. So certainly check it out. Let's wrap it up on one question, which I think, again, from Rich Willis, which was a, a really good one, which I, I don't think there's going to be a better group to answer this question. A fairly simple one. What advice would you give to people embarking on a career in military history? Because I think, I think everyone at this table has approached that in different ways there are and as we said before in the discussion there are so many more opportunities now than 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 the the traditional way of going to university and getting a degree what 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 advice do you give people i think more broadly not just a career in military history but people who are passionate about military history what advice would you give them about making that part of their lives and about learning more and, and 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 getting the skills required to be able to interpret and understand military history I think everyone will have something. So let's, why don't we go around the table? Carl, we'll start with you. That's a great question. And I think everyone has a slightly different path. I would suggest probably a key, key thing to keep in mind is there's more than one career path. There's probably paths. And so you can be have a job in, in a university. You can work in a museum or a gallery in terms of what we do here. But there's also other exciting opportunities. So the Battlefield Guide, um, working, thinking outside the box. So... There's more than just a um, study, PhD, job at university. From a practical point of view, I would suggest you need to be prepared to move. So that's the case of if you have a topic and you want to study at, you know, for a PhD or a master's, which um, supervisor is a good person to work with? What university can offer you good support as a postgraduate student? Um, who's a supervisor who's kind of, you know, has networks and connections in the field that you want to get into? So it's a little bit of about networking. Um, which is easier said than done. You also want to think about the opportunity to move. So, for example, if you're in Australia, a lot of the jobs as being a military historian is in Canberra. Um, so you do need to be prepared to move to Sydney, move to Melbourne, or if in other countries, you know, you have to be prepared to move. Uh, and you also need to be self-directed, I think, and to be really self-focused. Where do you want to work? What do you want to do? And you have to make your own opportunities. Um, so, for example, with the three of us here, none of us are from Canberra. We've all um, moved from outside different areas. We studied and we moved to Canberra for work because we wanted to We followed opportunities. Um, the sense of publishing, building a profile. You have to be really... But what I tell everyone, you have to hustle. You're constantly kind of hustling, getting out there, selling yourself, selling your wares. You need to have something to back it up as well. So the whether the, the formal study, the publications, the blog posts, the experience doing battlefield guides. Um, so think about what do you want to be, where do you want to do it, and then how do you want to get there, and ask for help. There's nothing wrong asking with help and thinking about saying, Matt, well, how do I get into doing podcasting or how do I do a battlefield tour? How do I become a battlefield guide, for example? You know, shoot me an email or anyone else here and say, how did you get a job at the memorial or how do you get a job in university? Um, so it's uh, they're there. You just need to work hard. Who's next? Kerry, what are your thoughts on this? How, if someone wants to follow their passion for military history, how's the best way to go about it? Look, I think Carl's really covered quite a lot of it. It's a matter of... Being willing to take opportunities when they arise. Um, I think for me that's always been the case. Uh, I was looking at being a high school history teacher. That was my career path. But moving to Canberra to study at ANU, working part-time at the memorial as originally as what we used to call information assistants, now visitor services officers in the galleries, um, really gave me my first taste of what public history was like. 
And so following that through and realising that I am very much a storyteller, moving through with the PhD and realising that academia in its purest sense, working at a university, getting the publications up there, maybe wasn't for me, but working in a public institution, sharing those stories was very much the right fit for me. And taking those opportunities when when they come, I think is really important. Um, the same with, as you say, Carl, battlefield tours, things like that. When somebody reaches out to you, as I was lucky enough um, to have David Horner do that for me in 2015, to be to have the privilege of being a historian on the the cruise ship that went from Albany in Western Australia all the way up through to Gallipoli, to be there out on the water looking at the peninsula at dawn on Anzac Day, a hundred years down. I wouldn't, you can't plan for that sort of thing. You can't, you can hustle as best you can. Um, but it was just an opportunity that when it's there, you know, there were other things going on, there was work, there were family commitments, but you grab those opportunities and you run with them. Lockie, what are your thoughts? Oh, on top of um, everything that Carl and Carrie said in terms of, on top of putting that dedication into the work, I think tops off what Kerry said is just remaining passionate about the subjects and the stories that uh, you're telling. And I think one thing I see amongst all my colleagues here at the War Memorial is they've got a passion for the, what we do here in, in telling of the stories um, of experiences of Australians in conflict over more than 100 years and the passion of learning new stories every day as we come to work here too. It's uh, not about what we've learned in the past, what we're going to learn um, going forward as well. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and I'll speak here as the mug who never even went to university. So I, I'm the walking representative of if you love it, just go out and do it and look for ways to do it. And we do, we were talking about the negativity of social media before, but there's a huge positive about that. If, if you are passionate about this, you can be heard. Your voice can be out there. So what I would say to people is, um, I call myself a historian in spite of the fact that I never went to university. I'm not affiliated with any university or museum, but I love history. Hopefully I know about it and I share that with people. So I call myself a historian and um, we could debate on the uh, the definition of historian, but uh, but that for me, that's that's what counts. And so I'd say to people that specialization is, or, is always important. You know, if you learn that you're great uncle was in the you know was in bomber command during the second world war maybe that's an area you want to specialize in just read as many books as you can go to the australian war memorial website and look it up and just just form opinions gain insights read books about it and then if you are someone who can write or can express yourself just go and do it put posts on twitter do a record a video on your phone and whack that up on facebook and it'll get shared um just there's do it because you love it. Do it because you're passionate about it and you do want to tell a story. They're wonderful stories. They deserve to be told and everyone has a voice when it comes to military history. You, you don't have to have a 1,000 PhDs to be entitled to tell this story. You've just got to be passionate about it and want to tell the story. So I'm a walking example of someone who didn't go to university and, and follow the formal path um, but hopefully is still uh, having uh, some sort of uh, impact on, uh, on the world of military history. So I'd say to everyone who's out there and wants to do something, uh, these guys are right. Ask lots of questions. Um, you'll be surprised by how approachable people are. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always amazed. I've never seen, you know, I, I've known the people at this table for a long time. I've never seen anyone reject any email that came across their desk. So uh, historians are very approachable, and we do want to encourage talented, interesting people to join this field. So, so reach out to people, ask for advice, um, listen to more podcasts like this one because it's been fantastic, guys. Thank you so much for your time. 
um, just a, a rare privilege to sit here and talk to uh, such a great team of historians about these important chapters. These stories do deserve to be told, and, and you guys are doing a wonderful storytelling this, telling this history. Um, and so keep up the good work. We'll have you all on the podcast again, but, uh, but just thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure. Thank you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.